This is J.D. McCabe. You're listening to Hall of Mirrors Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Welcome to the Hall of Mirrors on this awesome Saturday. Hey, we got uh, J.D. McCabe with us today, author of The Third Gift. Uh, what an interesting, mind-blowing story. It, it really is. Uh, and l- let's, let's say the entire title, because I think the entire title is pretty interesting. The Third <laughs> Gift, My Dance with the Devil and Her Mother. Yeah. Uh, welcome, J.D. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing the platform to, to be able to uh, talk about my story a little bit. And I really appreciate the interest. So thank you. Sure. So so let's kind of just jump right into it. What, when does this story start? You want me to start with the good years or after the wheels fall well, you, off? You know what? I, I, I think it, there, it's important to get to root causes. And the only way to get to the root cause is to start at the yeah. beginning, right? Yeah, I mean, this, you know, we were, we, uh, we were married in September, September 11th, 1993. And I mean, the short version is we had a very happy and stable marriage for the first 17 years. I mean, my, my daughter described it best when things started to fall apart. I, I found her, found her in, in her bedroom closet crying and asking me, you know, daddy, she always called me daddy. Um, she's 22 now, 23 now, so she doesn't call me daddy anymore. But she's like, daddy, what happened? You and mom used to be like teenagers in love. And at that point, I was still in the home, still in the marriage. It wasn't happy at that point, but um, I had no answers for her. I had no idea what actually was going on and, and why we ended up where we ended up. And I, I would later get that all cleared up. And that's the title of the book, The Third Gift. I mean, my first two gifts are my kids. And the third gift was a revelation that she made that opened so many boxes of deception and betrayal that it, it was apropos to call it a gift because it truly set me free. Uh, emotionally and enabled me to get my identity back as a, as a man and as a father, uh, certainly not, it ultimately wouldn't be a husband anymore, but was able to reestablish an identity that she stole from me. I allowed her to steal and, and, you know, my now ex-mother-in-law as well. Okay. So, so we're, we're starting, uh, since we're at the beginning here, uh, you guys are, are married in, in 93, correct? Yep. Married and you start a family and what's yeah. your profession at this time profession at the time which still is i was a um i was a district well i was a pharmaceutical sales rep started as a sales rep and then progressed to district sales manager regional sales director so forth so on but i've been in the pharmaceutical industry for a little over 30 years okay and what what's she doing she was a stay-at-home mom at that point um uh she had, you know when we first got married prior to having children um she worked part-time uh, that okay. was her desire to work part time. And I supported, you know, whatever, you know, whatever she wanted to do financially, we were in a position that, you know, she didn't necessarily need to work. So I, I supported it, you know, her desire to work part time. Okay. So, so two amazing kids uh, are consummated through, through yeah. the good years. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And so uh, at this point, your, your wife at the time uh, is a stay-at-home mom. You're, you're working. Are you doing traveling pharmaceutical sales or are you home every night? No, nah, I was traveling. I mean, at the, at the time, as a sales rep, I was probably traveling two to three nights a week. Um, I could, I could, this was prior to having children. I mean, once the kids came along, I adjusted my schedule. And if I needed to work a 12 or 14-hour day and, and make things day trips, I would do that. Sure. Um, it's a great question because as we would move forward, not to jump too far ahead, but they would later paint the picture that she, she sacrificed everything for me. She raised the children, but in fact, I was very involved in our kids' lives, coached their teams, attended all the, 
extracurricular activities they were involved in, but they would later try to paint a picture that, you know, she gave up everything for me. Yeah. Gotcha. But ultimately she, she, and once again, I, I, I haven't read the book and, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the book, but I'm, I'm just trying to paint a picture in, in my mind. So yeah. if, if we're starting at the beginning here, she had the option to work. She just chose to be a stay-at-home mom. You, you didn't say, hey, you know, you're, you're not old school, right? right. Say, no, my wife's not working. Hey, but hey, I can provide a sustainable uh, livelihood for us. It's your option if you'd like to work or stay at home. And ultimately, absolutely. ultimately the decision is made at that point that she's going to stay at home. That's correct. All yeah. right. So, so that, that's the good part, right? And unfortunately, that's I, the good part. So JD, I was reading, um, I know you guys did some counseling, uh, but you also mentioned she had an autoimmune disease and I, and I, I want you to connect um, maybe how that affected her mental stability or, you know, what was happening with that and what was the autoimmune disease, if you're allowed to say. Yeah, the autoimmune disease, um, the autoimmune disease was fibromyalgia. Okay. Uh, or at least that's what it was in, in her mind on paper. And I, I say that because I was led to believe, and it was the autoimmune disease that caused me the, the alleged, I should say, because we would later discover that she actually never had one. Okay. Um, but for 16, 17 years, I would say starting in maybe about the seventh or eighth year in our marriage, when we moved to the North Carolina area, um, she started complaining of having some health issues and um, she would allege that she had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And, you know, I, I, I had no reason to doubt her. I never asked to see her medical records. I never questioned it. Um, you know, those types of illnesses are very difficult to diagnose. I've been in the medical field, as I previously stated, medical pharmaceutical field for over 30 years. So I took her at her word. Do you ever um, see any scripts in the house? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She. Yeah. I mean, I would pick up a lot of her prescriptions for her for her autoimmune disease. But I would later discover there were a lot of prescriptions that I did not pick up. There were a lot of things that she was doing behind my back. Gotcha. Um, yeah. But the, it was the autoimmune disease that led me as things progressed. And I started to see some cognitive impairment. I started to see significant paranoia and delusions. I contacted a couple of neurologists that I knew from my professional career and asked them about the ability of an autoimmune disease to impact her cognitively. And they were like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it can attack every organ system in your body. So I started to chalk up a lot of her behavior change to her alleged autoimmune disease. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, I, and you're here, and I, I meant to ask you this. She's not, she's not in jail. She no. will get there. Right. And, and so she, she's, probably listened to a bunch of your interviews. Hey, did you ever have to sign like an NDA or something or is, uh, anything saying you can't talk about this stuff? No, no. And, and, and the reason being, and I've received that question a lot on the social media platforms of potential slander and so forth, so on, but uh, it's all public record. I mean, the majority of what we ultimately went through, all of our court proceedings are public record. So I took full advantage of that. Um, and we, we can, we can talk more about that, but, sure. and, and, and she's aware that the book's out there. Yeah. Um, you know, I made her aware of it a couple of years ago when I started writing it and told her, told her, and her, uh, you know, my now ex-mother-in-law told him through a text message. I had limited communication with him. I was feeling a little froggy one night and I just sent him a text that the book's half done. Uh, we had not quite finished up our legal proceedings when I started writing the book, but she's aware of it. She's now aware that it's, it's fully out there. Um, 
but yeah, no, I didn't. There, there's no non-disclosure. The one thing I did do with the book too, and it has nothing to do with protecting me legally, but I wrote the book under a pseudonym. I changed the names and I changed a few locations, primarily to protect the privacy of my kids. Sure. And also a ton of people, they got pulled into it. It was a four or five year nightmare. And we had family and friends and attorneys and therapists. We had a large circle of folks that that were pulled into it. So I wanted to protect their privacy. The interesting thing about the book, though, is folks on my side, the attorneys, the therapists, they all came to me prior to writing the book and said, here's the name I want you to use for me when you write your book. <laughs> so they, they picked their own names that are, that are in the book. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. So, so let, let's kind of get in the meat and the potatoes. You, we, we've been picking around it for, for uh, about 10 minutes. So, yep. so let, let's get into it. What happened? Let, let's let's start when when uh, the the romance period was over. Yeah, and I can talk. Yeah, it's, and I can also talk about kind of my theory of when I think things went off the edge when she was pushed to the edge. So I will back up for a minute because I think it's important context. When I started dating her, and this is a, probably the biggest red flag that I missed. Right when I first started dating her, she had been married previously. When I started dating her, she was twenty two. She had been previously married, married to a gentleman for, according to her, less than eight weeks. He was 10 years her senior. He had brought an 11-year-old daughter to their marriage. And she would later state to me that she never moved in with him. He was controlling. He was abusive. She was looking for a father figure. Her mother and her grandmother, um, you know, rest their souls, both of them, validated her story, you know, that she made a mistake. And so I left it. I left it at that. She had a very good relationship with her father. The other piece with her father is her mom and dad divorced when her father was two, he came out of the closet. And this is an important fact because once she had, once her first marriage was dissolved, her father took in her now ex-husband. I could never understand why he would do that. And her explanation to me always was, well, he's gay, he's attracted to him. Let, let, I, let me let me clarify this. You're yeah, because uh, yeah. I, I take notes, so I, I just want to make sure I get this right. Your your wife's your ex wife's first husband uh-huh. ended up moving in with her father, who left her mother because he uh, came out of the closet as a homosexual. Correct. Got it. Okay. <laughs> All right. No, I'm. Go ahead. Mind blown. No, carry on. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that contributes in several ways to ultimately what people believe that she has. People believe that she has borderline personality disorder that was kind of closeted for a long time. So before I, before I met her, before her first marriage fell apart, she had a very good relationship with her father. Very good relationship with her father. He would move to different parts of the country. She would travel as a young girl. She would spend significant time with her father. By the time I started dating her, she was estranged from her dad. She went 10 years without a relationship with her father. And when my son, Billy, was five years old, they knew about grandpa. They never met grandpa. He innocently said, hey, mom, why don't you just call him? And she did. And they reconnected and they had what I would describe as a superficial relationship. I supported the relationship. I met him. I welcomed him into our home a couple of times. We went and saw him. Well, that relationship lasted five years. And again, I say it was super 
superficial because I always, always thought that he was the SOB. I always believed what she told me. When in fact, I think now she lost 10 years of her father's life because she cheated on her first husband as well. That's what I believe. Okay. So, so, so when, when this relationship is going on, the, 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 the five years that dad was back in the picture and you're in the picture, is the ex-husband in the picture still or is he now... He was long gone. Long yeah. gone. Gotcha. Okay. And he, and he had only lived to them. I mean, I validated all of this information too. As I was writing the book, I spent a ton of hours researching a lot of stuff. And I researched, you know, um, real estate records uh, in the state of Florida and did validate that this gentleman was on the deed of the house. Along with, um, you know, my ex-father-in-law's life partner. So he had, a, he, was, he had a gentleman that he was with, you know, for 23 years. We met him. So five years into the relationship, again, superficial, because I would always say to my, my wife at the time, I would say, you know, have you ever guys talked about what happened? Has he ever apologized to you? She said, no, we kind of left that in the past and we're just kind of be beginning anew. And I'm like, okay, that's fair enough. Well, five years into the relationship, he had a massive heart attack and she had to make the decision to terminate his life. She had to turn off the ventilator. I mean, they, they couldn't save him. Okay. And it was the state of Florida. They didn't recognize gay marriage at the time. I don't know if they do now, but she had to make that decision. And then a couple of years later, his life partner died at a relatively young age as well. So I think those two deaths and I think the toxicity of guilt pushed her over the edge. And that's when the wheels in our marriage started to fall apart. So she began to go into therapy to help deal with the loss of her father, the loss of his life partner. And I fully supported it. But a few months into her therapy session, she started coming home and it would it would go in waves. It'd be like every two or three months that she'd begin to accuse me of infidelity. She'd want to ask to see my emails, my my phone, want to have access to all of that. And of course, I became defensive. Going, what, are you, what are you talking about? What have I what have I done to lead you to believe that I am unfaithful to you? Right. I shared with her my phone. My phone was never passcode protected. She had my passwords for, you know, my personal email account. I had nothing to hide. So that would pulse. That started in 2010, 2010. And she would suddenly start building these accusations and it would come and it go and things would be okay. But it wasn't until the, the spring of 2014 that the wheels really came off. These accusations intensified and then she would later pivot to drug addiction. You're, you're, you're doing drugs because it was in the spring of 2014 where the infamous arsenic poisoning began, I believe. Okay. I used to go 250, 255 pounds. I was a pretty good sized guy. My son at the time got into working out pretty intense in the gym. I said, I don't have the time you have. Just build me a workout. You know, I can get in and get out in one hour. I started working out one hour three times a week, lifting a little bit of weight. Switched from Coke to Diet Coke, started taking protein powder because my son's like, you know, dad, you need to take some protein after you work out. I'm like, okay. Nothing intense again, no cardio, not, nothing crazy. But in less than six weeks, I lost 30 to 35 pounds. And I'm like, this is fantastic. Right, I'm you doing know, something diet, right. <laughs> yeah, this Diet Coke is magical. Right. I didn't change my diet, you know, I'm, I eat reasonably healthy. I like my fast food every now and then, but I didn't change my diet. I didn't change anything. The only thing I introduced was diet Coke and then started taking a little bit of protein, but it was again, less than six weeks, 30 pounds, 35 pounds. Then it was 
40, then it was 45, then it was 50. And I started having intestinal issues. I started having tingling in my fingers and in my toes. I started having dizzy spells. I started having difficulty swallowing. And, you know, it became concerning that I went to a doctor, you know, our family practitioner. I will call him the illustrious family practitioner because I discovered a lot of things about him as well. Um, but they found that my white blood cell counts were elevated. I had liver enzymes that were elevated. I, the white blood cell counts were significantly elevated. And I had another enzyme called creatinine phosphokinase, which is also known as CPK. CPK will be elevated if you have a traumatic muscle injury. Certainly it's elevated after you work out. If you have a stroke, if you have a brain injury, you know, something serious. I didn't have any of those. And my, the normal level of that enzyme, which I will say today remains elevated, okay. the normal level of that enzyme is 200. You know, at one point, mine was 2,800. Wow. And so the accusations continued, and the weight loss certainly only further cemented her story that I was doing drugs, and I was perhaps cheating on her because, look, he's getting in shape. He's losing all sorts of weight. Um, and so her mom got involved. So let me stop you right, right before mom gets involved. So sure. We're, we're, we're still in 2014. Yeah. Uh, about what month did you start working out? Uh, how, how long did it take? And, and where, where are you at weight wise at this point? Well, I never weighed myself. But as I look at some of the look back pictures now, I go, man, I, I look, so in the book I put, I was two and a quarter, but there's no way I was two and a quarter. Okay. I was generous when I wrote the book, but I was easily over 250. All right. And then what are you down to by the time you say, hey, I need to go start seeing a doctor about this because it, something's not right? Well, again, I didn't weigh myself, but I, I didn't I didn't really go to see a doctor until I was down to about 190. OK, you know, so I had lost 60. I lost 60 to 70 pounds in probably less than two months, two months. OK. All right. Yeah. So 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 now you went to the doctors or doing the, the entire gamut of testing on you. We know you've yeah. got elevated counts, no cancers. Uh, no, nothing else diagnosed except these, these elevated enzyme counts and white blood cell counts. So yep. she's, she's continuing at this point to accuse you of infidelity and accuse you of drug use. And at that point, mom gets involved. So mom gets involved and, and enter ex-wife's mom. Right. And so we, you know, in the spring of 2014, again, thinking about, okay, man, I don't know what, how we got to where we got to, but she also would unbeknownst to me and my our son was away at college thank god our daughter was 15 at the time she would start working our daughter telling dad telling our daughter behind you know my back your father's got something going on i think he's doing drugs he's got a mood issue you know he's he's abusing alcohol which i wasn't abusing alcohol so she started planting the seed in my daughter that there's something wrong with dad and alienating me from from my own daughter so it was in June of 2014. So the spring of 2014 was very tumultuous. The biggest mistake that I made, and I don't mind admitting it, and I've told a lot of people what, when they say, hey, what advice would you give to somebody? I'm like, if, if you're going through something, any type of adversity, adversity, please don't do it alone. I come from a very large family. I've got five brothers, three sisters, a nice professional network, a nice group of friends. I kept it all to myself. Right work colleagues began to get concerned because they're like, are you all right? What's going on? And you've lost a ton of weight. Is this intentional? And um, so I stayed on an Island, told nobody about any of the discord in the marriage and started to take on everything. 
I certainly was never, ever going to accept the accusations of infidelity or drug addiction. But I started to get in my own head thinking, well, maybe everything that's going on with you physically, all this weight loss, I was, I was thinking maybe I got a brain tumor or something. I was hoping they would find something physically to explain why her interpretation was that I had a mood issue. So whatever she had been telling her mother, we go on a beach trip, Topsail Island in North Carolina. We go on a beach trip in June of 2014. It's my wife at the time, our two kids, her brother, his wife, and their, their children. And I come up from the beach one day, and I don't know where her mom and her went. I come up to get a drink, a, a soda, not a beer. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. I drank, but I, you know, it kind of fits with I wasn't an alcoholic. But sure. I come up. I'm, I say hello to them. She, her mother looks at me with death in her eyes and says, if you put your hands on my daughter, I will kill you. Perhaps you're addicted to porn. Perhaps you're addicted to drugs. There's something deeper going on with you. Maybe it's something that happened in your childhood. I mean, it caught me right between the eyes. And, and you're, you're only coming come, up from the beach at this point. Yeah, I was just coming up from the beach. There was no, I don't cat, know where, no catalyst for this conversation. No argument prior to you going to the beach or anything. Nope. No. Nope. And okay. I never, I never had a cross word with her mother in 23 years. Never, ever. Like their own mental health issues manifesting and, yeah. and turning around and, you know, focusing on towards them. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. I actually, have, well, it's, it's, I have it's a classic family. gaslighting. It's a classic yeah. projection. And the other thing too, is that, um, what was I going to say? I, what folks with borderline personality disorder do or folks, they build negative advocates. So she started to build a negative advocate in her mother, certainly, and in my, in my daughter and in you know, a couple of friends and family. And she was even unbeknownst to me making phone calls to my own brothers and, and their wives, starting to plant the seed that he has anger issues. We lived out of town. You know, we lived nine or 10 hours away, you know, born and raised in the Pittsburgh area, but we're down in North Carolina, so they, they don't have any vantage point. And they never even, you know, questioned me about it or even told me about it till after the fact because they simply dismissed it. So that happened. Um, and then, it, you know, things continued to spiral out of control. I started to just retreat within myself. And it was in September of 2014 that I ended up involuntarily committed and spent nine days in a psychiatric institution two separate psychiatric institutions. I went from an acute care hospital to a dedicated psych hospital with a police transport. Who sent um, you there? Who signed the commitment forms? It was our illustrious family practitioner. So there had been a, uh, a terrible weekend in September, September 13th. I mean, I'll never forget it. It had been our 21st wedding anniversary. What would have been our 21st wedding anniversary that because she thought I had mood issues, because we we're having some issues in the house, I said, fine, I'll, you know, I'll go talk to a psychiatrist. I'll do whatever I need to do to try to keep our family unit together, to try to work things out. We had gone to marriage, marital counseling, you know, I had six or seven sessions with a marital counselor. But of course, if that counselor didn't tell her what she wanted to hear, that was the end of it, you know, and we'd, we'd move on and be done with it. So I went to see a psychiatrist one time. In, in one visit, she went with me. And in less than 30 minutes, after filling out a very subjective questionnaire, a bipolar two questionnaire, I had been diagnosed with bipolar two. She, of course, checked all 10 boxes on it. I checked maybe, a, you know, a couple 
I don't remember which ones I checked, but he's like, yeah, sounds like maybe bipolar too. So that was September 9th, September 13th, um, Friday, September 13th, Friday the 13th. Um, I had suggested she go out to dinner with a girlfriend. You know, our daughter had started to stay away on weekends and I suggested go out to dinner with a girlfriend. I wanted her out of the house. Um, whatever we had been arguing about, I wanted just a little space. And I wanted to drink a couple of beers. So I drank three or four beers over the course of four hours. She came bouncing back in the door. And when I say bouncing, she came bouncing back in the door, all happy. Smelled the beer on my breath and immediately locked herself in a guest room. This was all, the plan was coming together for her beautifully. So I had done, been doing some yard work, took a shower, after I took a shower, I went to the guest room. The door was locked. I opened the door with a little pin key. I didn't go inside the door. I simply wanted clarity from her as to, okay, what, what's going on? What, what, let's talk about whatever silly argument we've had. She wouldn't discuss anything. She just looked at me with, again, a dark, vacant stare, never answered my question. I made the mistake of pulling the door shut. And I said, well, maybe the good Lord will take me tonight and your problems will be solved. I get down the hallway, about 10 seconds going, I shouldn't have said that. I came back and I said, ah, that's, that's not what I meant. You know, I, I meant, I forget what, how I rephrased it. But that was enough for her as I went back upstairs to our son's room because he was away at college. I wasn't planning on sleeping. And I'm upstairs. I hear the garage door go up. I come walking down the stairs, open the garage door. She's got the car windows halfway down. She's got her mom on speakerphone and her mom's yelling at the top of her lungs. Get out of there. Get out of there. Yeah, I knew the cops were coming. Hmm. So she called the cops on me. And the cops arrived. I explained to them everything that happened. I was open and honest. I said that, you know, I drank a few beers. I had been diagnosed with bipolar. I said that I have some serious issues with her delusions, her paranoia, all her accusations. I think it's related to her autoimmune disease. He accepted that. He said, you know, just have a good night so forth, so on. He goes back to his cruiser. I go out to the backyard. I look over the privacy fence. I see her car parked next to the police. I'm on the phone with my brother, Al and Jane, my two heroes that have walked with me through this whole nightmare, been there 24 seven for me. He's telling me, don't go out there, stay in a house, don't go anywhere near her. Well, I, I didn't listen. So I walked to the corner and I didn't get close to the cars, but I kind of walked towards the corner and you know, yelled, hey, after 21 years of marriage, this is what I get. So she didn't come home that night. Um, I didn't sleep that night. Um, ended up going driving, making a three and a half hour drive to Charlotte, North Carolina the next day, early morning. Wanted to talk to my son. I wanted him to hear directly from me what his mom had been saying about me. And I wanted him to know that, you know, I loved his mom, wasn't doing drugs. I didn't cheat on his mom. And please stand by me. I need you to believe in me. And um, he did. He always had, had stood by me. I came back home. She had asked. She had asked if I went to see our son, Billy, or no, if I had talked to our son, Billy, and I lied for 30 seconds. I said, no, I didn't talk to him. I said, I went and saw him. And she went ballistic. You're a pathological liar. You can never tell the truth. This has been the reason for the lack of trust in our marriage. So forth, so on. We need to separate. So the rest of the weekend was quite glorious, as you can imagine. Sure. I kept my distance. She kept her distance. I had a follow-up appointment with a family practitioner that Monday um, to have another revisit on the weight loss and the enzymes and continue to check things. We never evaluated that. 
she proceeded to jump right in and tell him about all the events over the weekend, you know? And, um, so I'm sitting on the exam room table. I'm a broken man. I'm completely hollowed out thinking my family of 17, 18, 19 years is going to fall apart. And as they say, the devil attacks your strength, right? And turns it into a weakness. And my strength was the love of my family, love for my family. And, and he says, well, if you lose your family, what will you do? And I said, I don't know what I will do. I mean, my head was lowered at that point, but I said, I don't know what I will do. And in less than two minutes, with his back turned to me as he's typing on his computer, it just sounds like bipolar. And if you don't go to such and such psychiatric hospital, I'll have you involuntarily committed. It was just that easy. Wow. I would later discover, once we move forward with the court court and the trial and the alimony trial and several of the things, and I would subpoena my medical records and her medical records, I would later discover that she had been writing letters behind my back, not only to my psychiatrist, but to the family practitioner. So when I'm down in Charlotte, North Carolina, visiting my son on September 14th, she's penning letters to these two guys, further setting me up, painting a picture of a drug addict, an abuser, a guy who's been cheating, a guy who we, you know, I can never trust. He's a pathological liar. So penning letters to it, per, pretending to be you or per, no, no, as my outreach, wife, out, outreach letters, outreach letters to them. And at the, the top says, please keep this confidential between, between us. And wouldn't you know what they did? I never heard from my family practitioner that she had been writing a letter or two. Were these email back. or handwritten? They were, uh, they were typewritten, but I believe they were emailed. Yeah. But they were in my file. They were in my medical records. When I got my medical records, I'm like, what is this? Now, this is, of course, a couple of years down the road. But so this so she, is why the, she must have been on your um, on your list of people you could share your records with. Then. Like when you go to the doctor's uh, yes. office. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so I have to ask, you said you were involuntary admitted twice, right? Uh, once, just once. Oh, once. OK. And, and when was but, this then? That was actually what today's the 25th, right? Yeah. Uh, yesterday was the seven year anniversary of my first day out. So, so I was in from September 15th till September 23rd. Okay. I went to acute care hospital first. The, the dedicated psych hospital that I went to when I showed up with my little piece of paper that said, you know, I think I might hurt myself. Um, which wasn't the case, but I was, I was so despondent. I was so broken. I'm like, okay, whatever. I didn't, I handed the guy behind the window a little piece of paper. He's like, it's an eight to 10 hour wait, grab a seat. So I'm like, I am not staying here. Given my line of work, I knew of the acute care facilities in the area that had dedicated psych units. So I went there and I spent three days at an acute care facility, um, you know, thinking that, okay, I should be going home in a day or two. And then on the third day, uh, you know, the Wilmington Police Department showed up and I said, what are you guys doing here? They said, well, we got a bed for you at, at a place that I now call Holy Hell, but we've got a bed for you at Holy Hell. We're here to take you. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's more to the story than, than that. So I spent three days in acute care facility, six days in a dedicated psych hospital. So were they, were they pushing meds out to you this whole time? Yeah, I mean, not so much in the acute care hospital, but once I got to the uh, dedicated psych facility, I, I was on a very low dose of a, a anxiety, mood medication called lamictal or lamotrigine. I was on 25 milligrams. It's a very low dose. 
I would later discover my ex-wife was taking 500 milligrams of this on a daily basis behind my back. I'm like, we can talk about how we got there, but, um, no, it's, it's yeah. interesting because like <clears throat> examples of your story are happening every single day all across America. So, uh, gen- gentlemen or even females that, that, that are listening, you know, uh, you're not alone. Okay. Listen, yeah. to the, listen to the man's story. And, um, you know, well, I'll, I'll let you keep telling your story. No, we'll go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just, so you can give these people advice, you know, if they, you know, for looking for red flags, um, things that they can do if they're, if, you know, that they notice things, uh, so they're not stuck in an unhappy relationship and, and, uh, feel like that, you know, that they are depressed, even though they may not have depression, but they've been manipulated, uh, you know, just looking for answers. Yeah. Gaslighting is real. I mean, the first advice, as I said, you know, you know, I would say to your audience is please don't go alone. Um, confide in somebody because I lost my sense of objectivity, right? I stayed on the island. I isolated myself, which is what the gaslighters want. They want to isolate you from family and friends so that they can continue to potentially drive you insane. Um, and so the other thing would be if you're, if you know what you've done, right? And you can be accountable for your own actions and know that, okay, you're not cheating. You're not doing drugs. You're not doing this or that. When they're making those accusations against you, 99% of the time, it's because they're doing it. You know, the guilty are usually the accusers. And I didn't, I didn't, never crossed my mind. And I can talk about why I never thought that she would ever be out running around on me. I mean, part of it is because of her autoimmune disease, which she doesn't have, that she'd be in bed at 8, 39 o'clock at night. But I would later discover why that was. Um, so the advice would be, don't ignore the red flags. If folks are making false accusations against you, then more than likely they're doing it. Somebody asked to see your phone, your emails or whatever, then you know what? Return the favor and say, let me, let me see yours. And, and, I never did. Right. I never did. And indeed, you found out she was cheating and you found out. Uh, Absolutely. Disgust, that's the, in a disgusting way, kind of. Well, that's the third gift. Yeah. You know, the first two gifts are my kids. The third gift, again. Uh, the third gift is when once we once I moved out of the house, I left the marriage, stayed in the marriage after getting out of the psychiatric facility. I stayed in the marriage for another seven or eight months, whether that's right, whether it's wrong. The way I look at it now is this is where God wanted me to be, because had I not stayed in the marriage, I like to call it. I, I was on the right. I was on the right side of what if. OK. And what if I had left? Had I left the marriage? Um, a couple of my brothers that came down when I was in the psychiatric facility, they saw what I didn't see that she set me up. They didn't know about the letters, but they didn't like what they saw. She didn't join them for meetings with our, with my social worker. She had errands to run and was too busy to make it to a meeting with my two brothers to talk about my admission and what they could do to get me out. She wanted no part of that. So that didn't sit well with them, but I stayed in the marriage seven or eight months. Had I not though, she would never have contracted herpes. The third gift, ironically, and God has a sense of humor, the third gift is herpes. So once we went towards mediation, our first mediation, July 7th of 2015, um, once they, I'm in one room with my attorney, she's in another room with her attorney. There's an attorney going back and forth. And of course you got the legal meter running the whole time. Yeah, after they made their first offer of what they wanted, the mediator, 
very nonchalantly dropped on the table a lab report from LabCorp. And she said, oh, by the way, your, your soon-to-be ex-wife wanted me to let you know you gave her herpes. And that was, I looked at the report. I know what I'm looking at. It was a DNA test. And I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, she's got it. And I began praying to God. I hope she didn't infect me because we had been together two to three weeks before I was manipulated out of the house. We had been together three nights in a row. And in the book, I'm smiling about it because a couple of people helped me come up with, they said, yeah, you need to call that slip and slide night. So (laughs) I, I lay out the details in the book. My, both of my kids now young adults read the book. And of course my daughter's like, dad, really you had to put the sex stuff in there. But I'm like, well, I had to put it in there for context. It's life. So I am, I am certain she thought she infected me those three nights we're together. There's no way she would have played the card without it. So, so, so the third gift. It, was, it wasn't, the, 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 the sex wasn't about you guys, you know, being in love and trying to make things work. It was, it was there was a, de- a dubious reason that she allowed you to have sex with her because she was purposely trying to uh, in, in, infect you. Yeah, she initiated it. Yeah, yeah. And she, and she took some other steps to potentially, which I won't get into, but to potentially increase the likelihood of infecting me. And by the grace of God, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't infected. And fortunately, um, I would later discover that, that the herpes was not an isolated incident. That she pretty, because I once she made once she made that accusation, once I got my negative test results a couple of days later. Um, I immediately, the morning after, of course, I didn't sleep much throughout any of this, but the morning after our first mediation, I'm like, if she's got herpes, I knew nothing about STDs, but I'm like, if she's got herpes, she's got to be on something. So I had no idea what I had access to as the primary cardholder for our insurance plan. I spent hours and hours looking at medical claims, and I want to be clear, not medical records, but medical claims and pharmacy claims, five years worth. And I discovered so much. My first discovery was her drug addiction, her hidden prescription drug addiction. I, and the title of the chapter, it's chapter 11, it's called Three Clicks, because it only took me three clicks to get into our insurance plan. And I looked at her pharmacy claims first, and I'm like, what are these prescriptions marked private? You know, and I scrolled down quickly on my iPad. I pulled over, I was driving to PA because I'm like, I got to get out of town. And I pulled over and I'm scrolling. And I'm like, what are these? It went back five years, two prescriptions every month marked private for five years. Were they opioids? No, that was my initial thought. My initial ignorant thought was, well, all right, maybe she needs to take these. Maybe she's had herpes longer than I imagined uh, because I knew nothing. But that's the next part that I went through, Mike, was thinking, oh, maybe these are opioids. Maybe this explains her anger, her paranoia, her delusions. Turns out they were Adderall. And Adderall XR. Oh, okay. She had an amphetamine addiction. Yep. Uh, going back five years. And of course, I learned a lot about Adderall and Adderall XR. I knew enough about it because our son had been diagnosed with ADD, ADHD when mm-hmm. he was in fourth grade. But that's the other discovery that I would later make that she not only was getting prescriptions in her name, but she was filling prescriptions in our kids' names for two years. It's amazing what Adderall does to the brain. Yeah. It's very dangerous if you don't have a deficit. Correct. And, and so it wasn't only Adderall. She was on three different formulations. So Adderall, Adderall XR, Ritalin LA. This is where I discovered her 500 milligram a day dose of Lamictal. When again, I was on 25 milligrams. 
Um, she was on uh, clonazepam, 300 milligrams a day. So she was what they call prescription speedballing. Mm -hmm. So you're taking uppers, you're taking downers. And that was the first, first point of clarity for me was, well, no wonder she's in bed at eight o'clock or eight 30 every night. Yeah. Her body's crashing out, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I discovered that and I certainly found the valcyclovir, which was used to treat her herpes. I found, you know, a couple of prescriptions for that. So I'm like, okay, this is a recent infection. And um, yeah, it just opened the doors to, I mean, it, it set me free emotionally, first of all, because it was God's smack across my face to say, son, your marriage is over. You know, going into our first mediation, I had no idea what was up because she played me like an emotional yo-yo, you know? So those three nights of intimacy prior to being bounced out of my house, you know, it gives you false hope. Right. And we, we did that emotional yo-yo dance for six or seven months and it was awful. I mean, of course I would, spend multiple nights at a hotel, but then would later, you know, live out of a hotel in my car for three and a half months until I realized, okay, this is going to drag on a while. You need to find a suitable place to live. Um, you know, which I did, but it, it set me free emotionally because it's okay. Everything that she had been accusing me of doing, she was actually doing. So massive infidelity, drug addiction. Um, and yeah, it was a, it was a tremendous amount of clarity. All right. So, so you, you get through the first mediation, uh, you ultimately, you, you, she tries to, to play the blame game with you. Uh, you, you go to your, you know, as you say, your chapter 11, three clicks, uh, is it the discovery of her, uh, amphetamine uh, addiction a at that point? Now, where are we at? We're, we're going to the second, third mediation. How many we ended up going, did this take? Yeah, we, we ended up going through four. And so, so, and I ended up, we ended up having to retain uh, an STD expert um, because after, so in August, the following month, you know, we, we, I figured out this is going to end. It's going to end in August because I tested negative. So we go to mediation. I'm proud as a peacock thinking, oh, this is over. This is over today. The only reason we kept fighting this, I want to be clear for your listeners in the state of North Carolina, if there's proof of infidelity, there is no alimony. Okay. And so that's the only reason why we did the dance that we did. And so um, go to our second mediation in August. I've got my negative results in hand. We dropped that little grenade on her. She ends the mediation and says, I'm going to go get the same test that he had. So she goes and gets the same test that I had. And she comes back with, um, she's positive for herpes one, which is non-sexually transmitted, but negative for herpes two. So at that point, you know, at that point, I really had not dug into her medical claims as much as I would because the attorney, my attorney, you know, again, they're not medically astute. The attorney and the mediator are like, oh, well, what do we do? You know, do we get a third test or what do we do? I said, nope, give me some time. Give me a couple of days. It was a Friday and I spent an entire weekend mapping out all of her prescriptions that I believe were for STDs. I discovered, you know, explanation of benefits where she had gone to see an OBGYN that I had no knowledge of, and she was tested for chlamydia and gonorrhea, and I would discover the antibiotic prescriptions that she filled to treat that. So I'm like, no, she's had a pattern of STDs. So at least that information was strong enough to compel my attorney to go find a national STD expert, and we happened to find one, and, you know, in October 2015, in less than five minutes, this guy and he you know he's he's trust me he's a national std expert 
to protect his identity. I won't go any further than that, but he knows what he's talking about. I In less than five minutes, he existed. says, I honestly, what's that? I, I, I know of a lot of professions. I've never heard of an STD expert. Uh, yeah, got, got to be in the medical field, though. Correct. I mean, that, that's he's an infectious. Yeah, he's an infectious, infectious disease, disease expert. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. That focuses his primary focus is on. I mean, because they're they're working on vaccines. Ironically, sure. talk about vaccines. They're working on vaccines for herpes and so forth. So maybe on, he needs to take Fauci's spot. <laughs> yeah, he absolutely should. He absolutely should. But anyhow, in less than five minutes, he says she's got both herpes one and herpes two, and she didn't get either of them from you. Wow. And so you know so. We went to the house was on the market. Once the house sold, we had agreed that we would go back for another mediation, but it was another short-lived one because we're like, we're not going to settle anything. Unless you want to waive alimony, we're not going to settle anything. You've got an STD. You didn't get it from him, you know, or we can keep dancing. So we kept dancing because, you know, her comment back was, I have an autoimmune disease. I don't have herpes. You all are crazy. And he's certainly crazy. So, I mean, I was dealing with a, very unstable individual. Sure. And so that we, sociopathic I, mentality, right? Absolutely. So we yeah. knew this wasn't going to be settled. So we ended up with a four-day alimony trial. But I also ended up having to defend myself at a domestic violence trial because once I was out of the house, she filed trumped-up domestic violence charges against me. State of North Carolina is a non-pleading state, so you can say whatever you want. She put in the argument that I abused prescription drugs. This is after I made my discoveries, that I abused wow. alcohol, prescription drugs, she wanted me to turn over my firearms, which I've never owned a gun in my life. She, you know, that her, our daughter's afraid of me. She fears for her life. That there was no basis for any of this, but I still had to show up and defend myself in court. So the domestic violence trial is in the book. The four-day alimony trial is in the book. The was that domestic the, violence a, a criminal trial or a civil? So I believe it's, no, it was in family court. Okay. And I wasn't real worried about it. I, I'm like, Okay, I don't even live in the house. I haven't seen her in like three months. What, you know, what? I said, what's the big deal? I said to my domestic violence attorney, because my attorney at the time who represented, would continue to represent me, didn't handle domestic violence cases. So I had to go find another guy in less than two days. And um, I said, what's the big deal? I said, even if the, the, the grant, even if the protection is granted, what's the big deal? He said, well, the big deal is she can call the cops at any time and tell them that you've been at the house, even though you've never been anywhere near it, and they have no choice but to arrest you. And I'm thankful that that protection order was denied because her paranoia would continue to escalate. And, and you know, uh, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's all laid out in the book, but I took advantage of the, the concept of public record. I got the transcripts from that trial, transcripts from our 40 alimony trials. So ultimately, Mike, we ended up Dancing in court for, uh, you know, a 40 alimony trial in August of 2016. We didn't finish up legally until 2018. Wow. What did that all cost at the end? In the end, uh, it, it really took a big chunk of my retirement. In the end, it probably well over $200,000. Oh. Yeah, I, I was going to say, be, because none of this was criminal, uh, it was all civil. You're out of pocket this entire way. All the experts that, that had to get brought in, obviously, they're not doing it. Uh, yeah. because it, it's pro bono, right? They're doing this because they're getting paid for this. So, you know, besides that, all the court costs, all the attorneys, all the investigative work, it sounds like you did a lot of it yourself, but yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty costly. And I, I think that's actually on the low end of what I would expect right. uh, for a, a multi-year. Let me put it this way. I stopped counting after 200,000. 
Sure. Has she since been remarried? She has not. No. I would say. So, so did you get out of the alimony? Uh, the answer is no. Out of all everything you were able to prove, the the the, the adultery, and and you still were on the hook for alimony. Yeah, and it's all laid out in the book. Um, and yeah, so after the after the ruling came down, so we had our trial ended in August of 2016. We did not get a ruling until January of 17. So then I filed through my attorneys what is known as a Rule 59 motion where we can introduce new evidence. So I, I went and had a couple more tests done. I had a test done out of the University of Washington, which is, you know, the gold standard used in clinical trials. I had, again, negative evidence to suggest, not to suggest, but to confirm that I don't have herpes. And we took that back to the judge. It took us 13 months to get back in front of the judge, and she refused to hear the evidence. Sure. So he was so, quite quite pissed that we even filed the Rule Fifty Nine motion. I can see it in your body language, and it's the same judge. Yeah, it's unfortunate sometimes judges get that that pompous stance once they get on the bench itself, right? The the righteous indignation per se. Um, let, but I would like to say this if I could. So sure. so the way I got through all of this, and and again, you talked about advice earlier, Randy, would be. No matter what you're going through, please just find a way to count your blessings. You know, if you have to, if you have to sit down, I, I sat, I started sitting down, writing them down and reciting to say, okay, just when you think your life is shitty, you know, let's count your blessings. You know, you got your health. You, you're no longer being poisoned with arsenic. Um, you, you know, and ultimately, my daughter would come back into my life. I lost her for two years. So let's so stop. One- I have to stop you right there because that's something I want to touch on and you just touched on it. What yeah. the hell do you mean poison with, poison with arsenic? Yeah. So, okay, we got to cover that. So I talked well, about the psychiatric stuff in, the, in the, 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 the fall of 2014, right? Sure. I believe the, the, the arsenic was in the protein powder that started in the spring of 2014. I'm, I'm, I would bet my life on it. I can't prove it. Um, but, but anyhow, so I find that through testing that you had that in your system. Yes. Yeah, ended up that, being through so, your hair, right? Your hair. Positive hair and nail test, yeah. yeah. So that did not occur, if my memory serves me, that did not occur until May of 2016. So this is after going through hell for two and a half years, being bounced out of the house, nine days stay in a psychiatric facility, living out of a hotel, living out of my car, dealing with a domestic violence trial, dealing with all sorts of legal stuff coming at you. Oh, by the way, maintaining your full-time job and getting promoted while you're going through this. Right. So by the time I had discovered, so I put my health issues on the back burner. I had been, while I was still in the marriage, you had mentioned cancer originally. I had been tested for leukemia. I had been tested for Lou Gehrig's early onset of Parkinson's because they couldn't figure out why the CPK continued to remain elevated. They couldn't figure out why I continued to lose weight and the white blood cell counts continued to go to go north, um, but anyhow, so it wasn't until two or three months before our alimony trial that I finally got in with a liver specialist after putting my health on the back burner. I'm like, well, I've got this appointment. It was six months out. I might as well go. Told them what was going on. Told them that I had had a blood test done for heavy metals poisoning. It found nothing, and he said, well, that that's only going to pick up. Uh, acute exposure. If you've been chronically exposed, we need to do a hair and nail test. 
Okay. And so I had a positive hair and nail test confirm the arsenic exposure. Wow. But she had destroyed her phone. We would later find out, you know, she destroyed her phone. She essentially destroyed four or five laptops. She had four or five different laptops over the course of our marriage. And the protein powder that I believe it was in was long gone. So I have no physical proof linking it to her. Uh, I certainly wasn't poisoning myself. The pictures speak for themselves. And there was plenty of circumstantial evidence in my mind that she all of a sudden, when I was still in the home, took an interest, strong interest in our finances, life insurance, and wanted to know where everything was. So she had a, a, an incentive to, to take you out. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have a huge life insurance. I didn't have a huge life insurance policy, but she was beneficiary on everything. From professional experience, I can say arsenic is easy to get a hold of, especially in powder form. So okay. It's not, not far-fetched. Are you the one that gave it to her? Well, <laughs> you get it in, in on, little, I, little bottles. I, I, I'm putting, putting a, a mask over my pop right now. <laughs> <laughs> I work, I, let's just say my professional career is in the metals industry. Oh, nice. Okay. Excellent. So, but, so, but the other thing too, the other thing, which I think is interesting is the day after I got out of the psychiatric facility, I would later learn once I moved out of the house, I would get, once I moved out of the house, I got a call from our financial advisor. And he's like, by the way, I wanted to let you know, I was looking through some of your financial stuff and, 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 you know, Aaron, my ex-wife, Aaron's got power of attorney over your IRA. You know, I was going to ask that if she if she she went for power of attorney. Uh, over. I'm like, what? Yeah. When did that happen? They're like September 24th. I'm like, holy shit. That was the day I got out of the psychiatric yep. facility. And so I went and I quickly re went to the office, signed a little letter to rescind that. But I, I actually got the document. It was my signature, but she had filled in everything else. I do not remember signing anything. I certainly wouldn't. My head was so screwed up. I had just been started three or four days prior to leaving the psych facility. I've been started on antipsychotic, which I didn't need to be on. But they, to your earlier point, I think it was Randy. They, yeah, they just wanted to jack me up on the meds, just get me sedated, and you know, until they could send me home. So, um, would you say? So yeah, it was a crazy, it's a crazy ride. And I say all that because people on TikTok and Instagram are like, they can't believe. But this is why, for me, it was just like. It didn't shock me at that point because my sister-in-law months and months and months before this, she's, she's got a doctorate in nursing. She says, I believe she's been poisoning you or had been poisoning you. Wow. And I, I would dismiss that for a little while. And then ultimately I'd say, you know what? I need to get this checked out. And so, so we fast forward to today. Uh, yeah. the, the book is out uh, once again yeah. for our viewers. It's, it's the third gift. Uh, my dance with the devil and her mother. Yep. Um, with that being said, was the, the book therapeutic for you? Do you feel that the, the writing the book has helped you cope with this experience? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I will say that once it was, once it was finished and once it was released, it, it caught, you know, it was, it helped bring closure, but at the same time, having to reopen a lot of those boxes and, 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 there were a lot of moments where I go, Oh, that's right. She did that too. I forgot about that. Right. And, and so it forced me to relive it. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm good now. I did go through a little more PTSD um, probably last January, but it was all centered around the young kid 
kids that I spent time with in a psychiatric facility because it's, it's heartbreaking. I was in with, a, a, you know, freshmen in college, seniors in high school and stuff that legitimately tried to take their lives that were besides themselves when they're going to be sent home. They're like, I don't know why I came here. I don't know why I checked myself in here because I have not received any of the help and I'm, they're sending me home tomorrow. My first roommate, 33-year-old kid, tried to kill himself with cough syrup, tried to drink five bottles worth. Again, put that in the educational column for me. I didn't know you could kill yourself with cough syrup. Um, but he's like, yeah, they're sending me home tomorrow and I'm not ready to go. And I'm probably going to try to take my life again. And so the, the, the nightmares for me that I had, would have on occasion would be these young kids showing up on my porch at my house with, you know, guns to their head. So I've had to work through that. And, um, you know, but it, it was, it helped to bring me a tremendous amount of closure for me. You know, I was vulnerable to put the story out there. I knew that, you know, there would be support, but you'd also get some haters. Right. Sure. Um, but I was strongly encouraged to do it first of all, because it's a crazy story, a lot of twists and turns and we don't have time to cover it all. Um, but also because there's very few books out there about men on the other side of the equation. And I've been very clear on a lot of, I've been very clear on a lot of my other podcasts that it's not a men, me too versus men too thing by any means. We're equal opportunity offenders. You just can't find a book out. My therapist at the time was like, you absolutely have to write a book when this is all said and done because you don't, you don't see any books out there about men in abusive relationships. Sure. It, and, and that goes to the, I don't want to say toxic masculinity, but just masculinity in itself, where it's hard to be yeah. vulnerable, right? You're, you're, you're yeah. the male. Um, and at this point, you were doing everything you thought was correct with your relationship. And right. th this could have easily been uh, flipped the other way where, and, and that story probably, let's face it, that, that story is probably not unique to, to the rest of the world per se. It, you being the male, obviously that, that brings that, 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 le that level of uniqueness yeah. to, to the book. Yeah. Did your, uh, well, you said you were separated from your daughter for a while. Um, did they unfortunately take sides or, you know, how were they through the whole process? Yeah. And, and yeah, great question. Sadly, my kids had to endure this again. This is a four or five year journey. They had to endure it throughout their entire high school entire you know, my son had to deal with it throughout his college career. Fortunately, he was away from college. He was away at college. He was insulated from it. So, of course, he would come home, you know, on occasion. He would stay away more often than, than he had done previously. But my daughter was 15 or 16 at the time um, when she essentially was alienated, alienated from me. Um, but she came back into my life in March of 16, three or four months before our alimony trial began. She was living with mom and she, she saw it for herself, fortunately. And I thank God every day for a lot of things, but I thank God that my kids were not seven and eight years old, that they were old enough to begin to see it for themselves. And she came home from high school. Um, mom couldn't walk. Mom couldn't talk. There was dog food all over the floor. And, um, you know, I, I, I had been out of the house. I still had legal access to all her pharmacy claims and medical claims. And I watched those bad boys like a hawk every day. And she was in withdrawal from all of her, at least her amphetamines and her downers because she was looking for work. Yeah. And I knew that was going to happen. And so my daughter saw it. 
She reached out to me. It was one of the happiest days of my life when I got a text from her asking if I was home. I was out of town traveling on business. She knew I was, but connected with her. And then, um, you know, a week later, she moved in with me and, and, you know, never looked back. Awesome. So it was just uh, just uh, because, because of the situation, she naturally kind of stayed with mom as it was unwinding. And unfortunately, well, she believed she also was young enough and gullible enough to believe everything that mom told her okay yeah so she wasn't mentally she would, we, didn't, we didn't talk much about it when she came back into my life I, I i wanted to focus on her i wanted to focus on our relationship i mean i missed two of her birthdays i missed her 16th birthday because i was oh, locked man. up i missed her 17th birthday because she wasn't in my life um and so i wanted to focus on us but she would open up bits and pieces to me and she would say you know dad mom mom told me you're in the psychiatric facility because you were depressed and because you were, you know, you were a drug addict. And, you know, I would, I would ultimately show her my negative drug tests. I'm like, and she said, well, mom said you had a positive drug test. I said, I've never had a positive drug test. I wasn't in there for depression. Um, and I didn't get into being set up and all that, but certainly now they've read the book as young adults and they're like, you kept so much from us. That's like like, a- well, that, I'm like, I was supposed to keep it from you. That's right. like a whole nother podcast we could do about how kids are manipulated and weaponized and oh they sure are yeah and, uh, marriages it's crazy I mean if I if I were to write another book and it's a lot of work but I I think it's a great point I would love and maybe there are books out there but I would love to hear kids' voices on 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 all of this and what they what they're thinking and what they go through well maybe there's that's a fourth the other, and fifth gift for you you know well that's the other thing too yeah so the other thing too i mentioned two 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 right sides of what if what if i had left the marriage before she contracted herpes because she contracted it in the she contracted it right at the time when we were together those three nights in a row i mean our std expert nailed it and what if i had tested positive what if the lord had not blessed me with a negative herpes test if i had tested positive and she testified i mean i certainly would always know it i didn't give it to her but what would my kids have believed? Right. Yeah. Well, dad was in a, you know, he's in a psych facility. Um, so who are you going to believe? So, I mean, the, the third gift truly is a blessing because it's set me free. And the other blessing is around the alimony piece. I've come to terms with it. I've got a little over four years to go, but they asked for 17 years and they wanted me to pay her attorney's fees. So fortunately the biased judge was kind enough to say, nah, we'll give you nine. And because of your settlement from the retirement, all that, you can pay your own attorney's fees. So I didn't have to pay the attorney's fees. So I gladly said that. saved you about 200,000 right there, right? Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, she's not, she's not, she's not, she's not an idiot. She's wickedly evil. Um, But yeah, she's not going to throw away that money by marrying somebody unless she finds another wealthy gentleman to try to kill. I don't know. Well, JD, I want to thank you. Uh, You want for our viewers, you want to, uh, to tell us what your book is one more time. Give us the name of the book and where they can find sure. it at. Guys, and I wanted to thank you again. This has been fantastic. I've enjoyed the back and forth and the conversational piece. I'd be happy to do it again. Or awesome. for any of your listeners live, I'd be happy to. But again, it's a third gift. My Dance with the Devil and Her Mother. They can find it. There's an audio book available that I narrated. They can find it as an audio book, ebook. It's on Ballast Books, um, Amazon, Target, any of your online retailers. If folks are interested in signed copies, they can order it directly through Ballast Books and I will sign it. They want to follow me. They can find me at, at The Third Gift on Facebook and Instagram and the infamous TikTok. 
So awesome. All right, JD, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for, uh, you know, positive mental health. And, uh, I hope that you, uh, think about writing another book, keep pursuing it because I think you can help tons of men out there that, you know, feel like they, they can't yep. talk yep. about it or they can't do anything about it. So yeah. uh, I encourage you to keep going. And well, I appreciate yeah. that. I thank you guys very much. Mm-hmm.